How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who controls history, that you are a God who controls all of the events in history, that you are working things together for good, and that you will bring about a resolution to human history uh, as we move through the church age, tribulation, and into the millennial kingdom. Father, we continue to pray for our president at this time as he travels. We pray that you'd watch over him and keep him safe and secure. We continue to pray for our armed forces in Afghanistan, Iraq, and other parts of the world, that you would uh, watch over them, that you would provide for their safety, that you would provide for their uh, intelligence, that they might receive the right information, that we pray that we would be able to find these enemies of our country, Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden, and we pray that you would be able to uh, give wisdom to our leaders, that they might be able to uh, resolve some of the problems that are going on as a result of, of our activities in Iraq and Afghanistan as well. Father, we continue to pray for this church, for this congregation. We pray that we might uh, be steadfast in our uh, study of your word, making study of your word the highest priority in our lives, that we may continue to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we began a study on the problem of evil. This is really a technical uh, problem that you run into a number of times. I know several years ago I took a, a philosophy course that was just on the whole n- nature of this debate as to how to resolve the problem of, of evil. This is considered by many to be one of the most uh, significant issues that you might be challenged with by an unbeliever in the course of witnessing to somebody. In other words, they may come out up and say, well, how can you believe in a God that is loving and omnipotent when he allows all of this suffering and death and disaster to take place in human history? And if you're like me, that will occur just about the time you're at some Christmas party and you're just about to put a piece of of cake or something else in your mouth, and the last thing in the world you're prepared to discuss is something heavy like that, and you're just caught flat-footed, and you go, duh, 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 and we all go through that, where we get stuck in situations and people just blindside us. You will get hit with those questions when you least expect it and are least prepared. I think that's just part of the angelic conflict. So that's why we have to go over this stuff again and again and again, so that when that happens, hopefully we won't be the mental stumble bums that we frequently end up appearing to be. The problem of evil is considered by many to be the biggest 
problem, technically, in a philosophical sense, to Christianity. If you know the answer, of course, you've been a believer for long, it doesn't seem for you to be a problem. But for many unbelievers, it is a major stumbling block for them as they look at at Christianity and as they look at the world because they have no understanding of the angelic conflict, they have no understanding of sin or the dimensions of sin. They have a shallow, superficial view of evil and its consequences, and therefore they just can't comprehend why or how a good, loving God can allow for all of these things to take place. And as I pointed out last time, that you will run into this question in one of two contexts. First of all, there's the practical context of dealing with a friend, a family member, a neighbor, a co-worker who suddenly gets hit with some extreme adversity, the death of a child, loss of a spouse, uh, a natural disaster, something of that nature, and they wonder, how can God let this happen to me? Why did God cause this to happen to me. And as you try to witness to them, then they will usually attack you directly, maybe not in a, in a offensive manner, but they will say, how can you say that God's good and loving when he lets these things happen to me? And you explain that. And it immediately puts you on the defensive. And then there's the more intellectual form of the challenge where the the issue is posed that God, that the Christian God has, claims to be good or righteous. You claim to have a God who has integrity. He's perfectly righteous. Therefore, he is, is good. He's absolute love and omnipotent. And the way it's phrased is this. If God is good, then he must not be powerful enough to control all of the evil, injustice, and suffering in the world since it continues. Or they will say, if he is powerful enough to stop all of this injustice and suffering, then he must not really be good because he's letting it continue. So this is the way the problem is structured. And last time we began to look at some ways to answer this. Now, one of my favorite way to answer some of these questions is to throw it back on the person who's asking the question, especially in the context of someone who is directly challenging you. Now, if it's somebody who is just saying, well, how do you answer this? Well, then you have more of an opening there, and it's less of a challenge. It's more of a uh, they're, they're ready to hear an explanation. So in any sort of witnessing situation, you need to be sensitive to the fact that you don't always handle the same kind of question the same way. You have to judge from the context and understand something of the person and where they're coming from and their situation in life. But what I like to do if somebody's the least bit hostile or challenging or questioning is to try to throw it back on them using a good Aikido move or Judo move in the sense of a debate, te- a debate technique of using their own energy against them helping them to realize the fallacy of their own position and the inadequacy of their own position before you give them the answer because they're not really ready to hear the answer yet because they don't realize they don't have the answer. In arrogance, they, they're pretty comfortable with whatever they think their solution is. Remember, the orientation of the human mind, of the fallen human mind, is Romans 1, 18 and following, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So they've made a lifetime pattern out of suppressing the truth 
and they they're pretty comfortable with understanding that well god really can't there really can't be a god who who is in control of everything because there's so much evil and so they've they've become comfortable with that so you have to make them uncomfortable with their position and last time i said that the way to do this is to ask them well how do you resolve the problem if you don't think that god's good enough to control evil what's your answer and as you get their answer, then you push them into a corner through your questions, not in a nasty or mean fashion, but in a nice uh, conversational way. Just say, just ask them the right questions that end up exposing the weaknesses and the flaws in their position. Now, last time we started our study by looking at the contrast between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. There is always this contrast. And we started, first of all, by looking at human viewpoint, and we looked at ancient paganism. And in ancient paganism, and again, what I mean by paganism, if you look the term up in the dictionary, it means, I mean, pagan means someone who doesn't believe in the God of the Bible or the thinking of the Bible. So that automatically excludes Jews, Christian Jews. Jews aren't pagans. Now, they may be. If they're secular Jews, they may be pagan. Uh, but uh, Ju- Judaistic thought, Islamic thought in some sense. Now, we all know that Islam is evil. It's right out of the pit of hell. And Islam is uh, one of Satan's greatest uh, religious inventions uh, in human history, and it's directly antagonistic to Israel. But it's not technically pagan because they do, although we don't agree with them, they do claim that Allah is the God of, of uh, Abraham. So ancient paganism is all other forms of thought that reject the Bible. I mean, that's paganism. Ancient paganism, last time we looked at three things. We looked at the Babylonian explanation because that is roughly equivalent in the time frame to uh, Moses in the Genesis account, we looked at the Enuma Elish, and we saw that you start off with a group of gods, and they're already arguing, fighting, and there's violence, and there's already evil there. There's no explanation of an origin. Then we looked at the Greek view in the, the Theogony of Hesiod, and the same problem. There's no ultimate origin. There's no fall in any of the pagan mythologies. And then you look at ancient Egypt, and you see the same thing. Now, Egypt's important because, remember, that's where Moses was educated. Moses grew up in the household of Pharaoh, so he's educated with an Egyptian cosmogony. cosmogony. So these three all end up saying with no real uh, explanation of the origin of, of e- evil. They all start with evil, sin, present in the, the gods that they espouse. Then we looked at modern paganism. And modern paganism, primarily, we're interested in Darwinistic uh, explanations, evolutionary explanations of, of, of secularism. And there you come up with the same thing. In modern paganism, evolution is the means. And in evolution, you have this key phrase, survival of the fittest. And in survival of the fittest, of course, we pointed, have pointed out the flaw that it, that does not explain the arrival of the fittest. But the idea here is that the struggle, 
death, disease, etc., all part of the mechanism of evolution. To go forward, you have to have death, you have to have suffering, you have to have this struggle. So in evolution, to advance, to go forward, you have to have death, disease, and disaster. Well, that means the death, disease, and disaster are really good in a Darwinistic framework because that's how you advance. So evil is good, and good is evil. Well, now all of a sudden you've got to ask questions to focus somebody on that recognition that what they're really saying is ultimately all of this evil and suffering that they're complaining about is really the, the means to advancement and evil is good and good is evil, and all of a sudden any distinction, any real absolute distinction between good and evil is is no longer there. And see what their their problem is that man as a as a creature in the image of God is saying it ought not be this way. It shouldn't happen that way. God shouldn't allow this. This is wrong. This isn't right for for there to be so much suffering and and heartache and misery. And see, they're using these absolute terms to describe the uh, their situation and describe life, and they have no right to use those absolute terms. And you're just pointing out that if evil is good and good is evil, they have no right to say something is right or something is wrong. And that ultimately is going to be because all human viewpoint thought operates on something called the continuity of being or the chain of being. I actually like the term chain of being the same. And this, this describes a continuity or continuum of existence. And it starts with God at the top and rocks down at the bottom, microbes, whatever you want to put at the bottom. And it includes suffering, death. Everything in reality is all part of this same continuum. And so in some religious and philosophical systems, when you push the thought back far enough, you end up with all reality is reducible to, to, to one thing. And that is called monism. And frankly, I think that all non-Christian thought can ultimately be pushed to some sort of monistic uh, situation. And in monism, you go to, into Buddhism, you have the yin-yang symbol looks something like this where you have white on one side with a little dot here and a little dot there and black on the other side and this represents the circle represents that all all reality is one and it manifests itself sometimes as black and sometimes as white but that's just uh, in eastern thought that becomes an illusion and that's another category of explanation that that uh, we didn't really get to so much last time but in this continuity of being, you end up losing the ability to ultimately make anything, anything distinct. So then our third category of paganism, third category of paganism is what I just alluded to, and that is mystical Eastern religious paganism, which we really didn't cover much last time. But in a lot of mystical Eastern thought, Evil or suffering or sin is just is just an illusion. They call, the Hindu term is Maya. It's just, it's not reality, and this is the same kind of idea that was picked up by Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy in Christian Science and New Thought Metaphysics. It's in the New Age movement, and to some degree in places that that this isn't real. This isn't the real world. You can even see. Uh, some of that in Platonism. 
because Platonism thought that you have an ideal world which is ultimate, where ultimate existence is, and this world is just a shadow world, and so ultimate reality is is somewhere else. So they avoid uh, evil, and or they reduce it. It's not real in, in some sense. Well, after we looked at those human viewpoint systems, we came up with with two basic conclusions or observations. First of all, in all human viewpoint thought, in all human viewpoint thought, evil is eternal. There's no beginning and no end. All evil is eternal. It's always been that way. You look at all their explanations, that's how it started. It's just part of reality. Uh, there's always been suffering. There's always been death, destruction. And that means if evil is eternal, that has certain implications. The first implication is that this means that evil is normal. Sin, I'm not saying not sin, but suffering, evil, disaster, disease, this is just normal. Now, what that does, as soon as you say evil is normal, it reduces its significance. See, that's the same thing that happens in the Eastern variety of thought. When you come along and say that evil doesn't really exist, what have you done? You've trivialized it. It's, it's not real. It's, it's just illusion. And if you come along and say, well, evil is normal, you've also reduced it. You begin to trivialize it. It's not as significant. You begin to, you're not dealing with it as the Bible deals with it. One illustration of this might be that in, in, in our modern world, we have environmentalists who come along and environmentalists thought man is the real enemy of, of the environment. Look at all the horrible things that we've done to the environment. We've polluted lakes and rivers. We've, we've uh, caused all kinds of problems in forests. We've caused the extinction of numerous species. Man is really evil. Well, wait a minute. Let's think about this a little bit. From the Christian perspective, Let's think about this. Adam ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God explains the consequences of that in Genesis 3, and it changed all of nature radically. Yeah, you're right. Man is the cause of tremendous environmental disaster. Well, wait a minute. We don't want to go that far. See, they want to blame man, but they don't want to take evil and sin to the same level of destructiveness that the Bible does. That's going way too far. So they've diminished their understanding of the depths and the extremes of evil. Another example of uh, what happens when you take evil as normal, and this is typical in Darwinistic thought, is that you no longer can really distinguish between ultimate evil. Uh, let's go back to this diagram, this circle, or this... this uh, oval that I, vertical oval I put here, the chain of being from God down to rocks. See, what's included inside this chain of being is is both good and evil, so that evil and good are determined within the creation itself. Biblically, you have, you don't have this chain of being. You have God outside of all other existence as the creator and the Bible speaks of the creator-creature distinction so that there's an absolute out here for good and an absolute standard out here for evil, and it's on the basis of those absolute standards that you can judge and evaluate what's going on within the created order. But in human viewpoint, there is nothing outside that continuity of being 
in that chain of being, and so the good and evil ultimately reduce themselves to simply relative terminology within the system. And that's why it ultimately breaks down as to why uh, they, they, uh, the consistent pagan cannot claim that something is good and something is evil. One example of this comes from the writings of a man named Sir Arthur Keith in a book called Evolution and Ethics, which he wrote in 1947, which was just two years after the conclusion of World War II. Now, this was a Brit who had survived the Battle of Britain. He had seen almost firsthand the horrible consequences of the Nazis in World War II. And this is his comment on Hitler. He said, and he's consistent as an evolutionist. Remember, the title of the book is Evolution and Ethics. He says, quote, To see evolutionary morality being applied to the affairs of a great nation, we must turn to Germany of 1942. We see Hitler devoutly convinced that evolution produces the only real basis for national policy. See, he's not saying that critically. He's saying that approvingly. And this is a man who has just recently survived World War II. In uh, American business, you see, have, I have a quote here from uh, John D. Rockefeller who stated that uh, American uh, that the growth of large business is merely survival of the fittest. This is not an evil tendency in business. It's merely the working out of the law of nature. Now, what he meant by that is what we would call an extreme destructive capitalism where you just, you don't care what it does to, to the people who work for you. You have no concern for, for your employees. You just, all you're concerned about is the bottom line and the profit margin. And that is a distortion, really. That is capitalism that was taken to a, to a new level by the justification of, of social Darwinism. So in these situations, you see what happens when evil becomes normal. There's no longer a basis for distinguishing between good and evil and anything goes. Furthermore, when sin is trivialized, when you start reducing the significance of sin, the impact of evil and its depth and depravity, what also happens is you trivialize and the need for salvation. That becomes superficial. The more you become trivial and superficial in your understanding of sin and evil, the more the need for salvation is trivialized, not only the need for salvation, but also the means of salvation. So man really doesn't have a constitutional defect. He is not depraved through and through, needing a Savior to die on the cross as a substitute for his sins. What man needs is just some help. He's not dead. He's sick. He just Now he can just pull himself up by his own bootstraps because he really doesn't have the problem the Bible says that he has. Also, when sin is trivialized, when you diminish the depths and depravity of sin and evil, then the need for sanctification is trivialized and the means for sanctification are trivialized. Man can do it himself. He can help himself out. He just has to uh, perform some good works. So in human viewpoint, what you see in terms of our first observation is that evil is eternal. And the implication of that is that evil then and suffering and disaster is normal. The second observation is that if evil is eternal and normal, then we're all victims and man isn't responsible. 
because we're just products of our environment, folks. And the environment's screwed up. It's just a natural thing. We're just products of our environment. It's not my fault. You know, let's go out here and we can justify this. We're going to find the the gene for alcoholism. We're going to find the gene for drug abuse. We're going to find the gene for homosexuality. And we're just going to uh, blame it on the, the universe. That's just the way it is. And so man isn't responsible. And you have the foundation for modern victimology where we're just all victims. It's not our fault. And that affects everything. That affects how you look at everything in in life, as a matter of fact, how you view evil is important to every arena of thought. If you do not treat evil the way the Bible treats evil, if you do not look at man the way the Bible looks at man, then you are going to have a skewed theory of economics. Economics has to do with man's relationship to man. You're going to have a skewed view of social relationships, of marriage, and this is exactly what's happened. Uh, we have a problem in this country with terrorism, but it's not so much an overt terrorism from the uh, Islamic hordes. It's a, terror- it's a judicial terrorism, and this is exactly the theme of uh, Judge Bork's recent book, is that there is a judicial terrorism taking place and a judicial tyranny taking place in this country, and they are rewriting reality. And this is what was seen yesterday in that decision in Massachusetts that uh, struck down um, the prohibition against same-sex union. And if you read their decision, they're defining marriage as a committed relationship between two adults. That is not the biblical definition of marriage. Biblical definition of marriage is a committed relationship between a man and a woman, a male and a female. And once they start changing the definition of marriage, of family, of responsibility, that's been changed by by the uh, law courts then you are destroying the divine institutions. And we studied the divine institutions recently, and they are the foundation for stability in any nation, in any group. And once you lose that, and that goes under, then that whole system, the whole nation will go under. So, And that's just a result of trivializing evil and making evil normal. And what we see here is that there are ultimately two different views of reality. This was clearly spelled out in a book by Thomas Sowell, who's one of the uh, best thinkers that we have writing today. Thomas Sowell in his book, Conflict of Visions, that basically you can discern the difference between liberal, liberals, true liberals, and conservatives because liberals do not view man as being constitutionally evil and conservatives do. And he traces it all the way back through the, back to the Enlightenment to demonstrate his case. And people have to recognize that, that everything that is coming out of the liberal left in this country today is antagonistic to reality because at the very foundation, not only of uh, theological liberalism, but political liberalism is a view that man is inherently good versus inherently evil. And you cannot be a consistent Christian and a Bible-believing Christian and not deal with the fact that, that every aspect of human society is permeated by the fact that he is a fallen creature. You can't have a legitimate, consistent view of literature, economics, politics, law, science, any discipline that, that, that man puts his mind to 
is ultimately comes back to something about man. Sociology, psychology, if you're not dealing with man as a, as a fundamentally flawed creature, fallen, constitutionally uh, changed by sin, then you're not in the realm of reality. And anything you build on that is not in the realm of reality. So you have to deal with this issue. Now, last time we looked at that and we showed that no matter what the human viewpoint system is, ancient or modern, it, it all ends up with, in, with these two consequences. In contrast to that, we looked at divine viewpoint and we saw that in Genesis 3, uh, 7 and following, you have the beginning of sin and evil. Then we looked at Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, and we saw the statement there in Revelation 22, 3, that there will no longer be any curse. And then in Revelation 21, 4, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And this is a direct uh, counterpoint to the human viewpoint position that evil is eternal. For the Bible says that evil is bounded. It is restricted. It is contained by God. There is a starting point and there is an ending point. See, if, if you take the position evil is eternal, then all you can look forward to in the future is evil. There's no resolution. If you're the, the, the victim of some injustice, the recipient of some injustice or suffering in life today, there's no resolution of that. There's no ultimate justice anywhere because evil always will be and always will be in the future. But biblically speaking, there is a beginning and an end. And there is resolution. The Bible talks about all kinds of different judgments. And even though all sin was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross, there is still human good in your life, which is a product of the sin nature. There is still uh, failures in your Christian life. And as a result of that, you're producing wood, hay, and straw when you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. And that has to be dealt with. And that's dealt with where? At the judgment seat of Christ, at the Bema seat. So... All sin and sin for unbelievers and their their failure, their human good, sin was dealt with on the cross, but their human good is dealt with at the great white throne judgment. So God judges uh, man, and so that everything that is not produced by the Spirit is either judged at the at the uh, judgment seat of Christ or great white throne judgment, and then it is uh, the, all unbelievers are sent to hell, and all of our failures are burned up. So there is ultimate resolution to the sin problem in a biblical worldview. So in answer to the uh, pagan position of an eternal or normal uh, sin, we see that in the Bible sin is not normal, that the present world is abnormal. It's not the way it ought to be, and that is, again, evidence of our own um, being created in the image and likeness of God. So suffering and evil are uh, are viewed as something that's very um, very abnormal. This is what happens in John 11. Open your Bibles. Let's look at John 11. This is the episode where Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And I always go to this in my funeral messages because. I like to get people thinking a little bit during a funeral instead of just emoting. 
And in John chapter 11, we have the shortest verse in the Bible. And in the shortest verse of the Bible, we read in verse 35 that Jesus wept. What led up to that? Well, the first part of the chapter, we discovered Lazarus, who's one of Jesus' closest friends. Uh, Whenever he was in Jerusalem, he would stay at the home of of, uh, Mary and Martha because they lived in Bethany, which is a suburb of Jerusalem. It was only two or three miles from Jerusalem. Quick 30 or 40 minute walk. And so he would stay with them where he could relax and enjoy their, their, their company. And so he's up north in Galilee and Lazarus becomes sick and uh, Mary and Martha send a messenger to him that Lazarus is sick and tell him come quickly. The man, the one whom you love is sick. And Jesus, instead of hurrying, you or I would, if we had the cure, we would hurry. Jesus doesn't do anything. In fact, he dawdles. He takes another day or two. Finally, he comes down there. Uh, to, to Judea, and when he comes down in uh, verse 17, we read, when Jesus came, he found that he, that is Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. So uh, Martha comes out to confront Jesus, and like, Jesus, if you'd really been here, my brother would not have, would not have died. And she knows that she can raise him from the dead. And Jesus, this is where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, as Jesus has confronted her with that, he then proceeds to the house. And as he comes up on the house, he comes on the morning scene in verse 31. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, Well, she's going to go to the tomb and weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They're not trusting him too much at this point. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, He groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see, and Jesus wept. Now, Jesus isn't weeping because Lazarus died. Remember, Jesus in his deity is omniscient. He knows that in five minutes he's going to say, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus is going to come popping out of that grave alive. So why would Jesus be sorrowing over the death of Lazarus? That doesn't make sense. He is not sorrowing. The key to understanding why he weeps is that he saw all of these people in misery. It is his compassion. He sees that man is in an abnormal state. He is having to go through what God never intended for him to go through initially, and that is death and disease and and destruction and sorrow and misery. Man was not designed for that initially. That is the consequence of the fall. That is a consequence of sin. And so we see this tremendous picture that we don't see in any other kind of religious system of a God who incarnates himself as a creature and encounters and experiences the consequences of sin and demonstrates his compassion for that. So we see a tremendous picture here of God's compassion for those who are going through the sin and the suffering.
Now, as we look at our analogy and we look at our contrast between divine viewpoint and human viewpoint, what we see here is that in Christianity, sin, disease, destruction, death are not normal. We don't live in in a normal world. We live in an abnormal world. And so we have a legitimate right to say, well, things aren't the way they ought to be. We can feel that tension because they're not the way they ought to be. And that is a sign of the fact that that we are uh, created in the image uh, image of God. Now, the second answer in uh, here is the second counterpoint is that to to human viewpoint, which claims that man is just a victim to what is naturally there. In Christianity, in the Bible, we see that man is responsible. It is his decision that that uh, has brought sin and suffering into the world. And man has a level of responsibility that goes far beyond anything that any non-Christian would ever uh, want to put on the back of man. Now, that's basically a review with a lot of additions to what we did last time. And the next big question that usually comes up in a discussion about the problem of evil is, okay, you say that God, there's a reason for God to allow sin and suffering in the world. Well, what's that justification? What could possibly justify God allowing evil to exist in human history and all of this sin and suffering, death and destructions? Now, first of all, there's a couple of uh, hidden assumptions in that question. You have to always be careful when somebody asks you a question as to what's, what's kind of hidden behind the question. First of all, when somebody says, what is the justification for God allowing evil, there's an assumption there that we, A, know the justification, or B, can know the justification. See, that's once again the creature dictating to the creator in that chain of being. If you have a human viewpoint chain of being concept, then the creature can understand God. But if you have God outside that circle with that creator-creature distinction, then man can't understand everything in the mind of God because God is incomprehensible. And God being incomprehensible does not mean the answer is irrational. Let me say that again. To say that we can't comprehend the answer doesn't mean the answer is not rational. It means it goes far beyond our ability to comprehend it now in this life. It's still rational. God is rational. God has a plan. He just has not disclosed everything to us that's in that plan. So... Usually when you get, read about some sort of debate over, debate over the problem of evil, that usually forms around the idea, well, there's some higher good. God allows sin and suffering because it achieves some higher good. And the human viewpoint opponents in a philosophical debate will challenge this idea and say, well, what higher good is there that could uh, justify all this suffering? And at some point, what they're really saying is we can't conceive of any higher good, anything that would be so good as to justify all this horrible sin and suffering. And that's the point. We can't. Yeah, great. You can't. But but you're also assuming that for there to be a an explanation, that it has to be conceivable. And comprehensive and totally comprehensible and controllable by the by the creature, but once again, you see what the hidden assumption is that they think God is comprehensible by man, so they're trying to force God into their box 
and they're trying to force their own their own control. And what this tells us is that the Bible gives us sufficient revelation. It gives us enough information to be able to answer the question, but it doesn't give us comprehensive knowledge. It doesn't tell us everything there is to know about the problem or God's reasoning for allowing sin, suffering, and disease to take place. And why is that? Because it calls upon us to trust him, to understand who he is, and to rely upon him in the midst of those horrible circumstances and to know that if God resolved the problem as much as he has, then he can resolve all the other details because he has solved the greatest problem we'll ever face at the cross, and the rest of the sin-evil problem is simply mopping up the minor details. Okay, that's where we're headed. Let's uh, look at this for just a minute. What we see in this question is that man wants an answer. Man wants to understand why it is that there's sin and suffering. Now, that in and of itself is an important thing to observe because that is evidence of man being in the image and likeness of God. We have this sense of oughtness. We have this sense of right and wrong, that this isn't the way it ought to be. And remember, we have talked about how man was created in the image of God. And we talked about the image of God. We saw that there were certain attributes of God which correspond to certain things in man. For example, we talk about God's integrity. And in God's integrity, God is absolute righteousness, which is the standard of his character. So there are standards, and he is just, and that's the application of those standards. And in that... Those two aspects, and veracity has to do with truth and reality, and that corresponds in man's makeup to the human conscience. And there he has certain norms and standards. And those norms and standards before the fall reflected God's norms and standards in his righteousness and justice. After the fall, they became distorted and perverted, but he still has a conscience indicating that there is a remnant there, a residual of that, of his imageness. That's what Paul's dealing with in Romans 2 among the Gentiles, that because they know there's right and wrong, even if their sense of right and wrong is is not correct, the fact that they know there's right and wrong is evidence that God exists and that they know that God exists. So because man is a rational creature, also we've looked at the fact that God is omniscient, and corresponding to that, man has finite knowledge. Because man has a standards and because he has knowledge, we know that man is a rational creature and uh, with this inherent oughtness, he knows that things aren't the way they are and so he is seeking an answer. However, we have to recognize under, that's all kind of point one, under point two is that the creature may want to know an answer But the creature is finite, he's limited, and he can't understand all of the answer. And the Bible never tries to give a comprehensive answer to the question. In fact, the Bible says that you're wrong to try to find a comprehensive action. You're just an arrogant creature whining in self-pity. 
Now, what we see in Job is a great example of biblical counseling. You'll never get this in any biblical counseling course, but let's let's look at this situation in Job. Slightly different perspective from what you have heard before, perhaps. Job starts off giving us the the, the, what's going on behind the scenes, and that's the angelic conflict dimension of suffering and evil. And last time I pointed out that when God r- restored the earth after the angelic fall, he restricted the angelic evil from the new creation of Genesis 1, so that there's no evil in that new universe of Genesis 1, 2, and following. But once man succumbs to Satan's temptation, then there is an intersection of angelic evil with human, uh, the human environment. And the human environment now comes under the domain of Satan, who is the prince and the power of the air and the god of this age. So what we see in Job is uh, the background of this and how there's this intersection. And what you have to realize is what we see in Job 1 and 2 in terms of the interchange between Satan and God is unknown to Job. This is off off stage. Job has no idea what is going on. He's just living his life, uh, obeying God. He's said in the text to be upright. He's righteous. He is not sinning. Uh, even when all of this ha- begins to happen to him in Job 1, the conclusion at the end of Job 1 is, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job is an upright man. What happens to him is not the result of anything he does, any decision he's made, or any defect in Job. He's living in a fallen world, and that's one reason we have we have uh, sin and suffering. So we see the situation. Job is living his life. He's got children. He's wealthy. He's got flocks and herds. And Satan says, God, the only reason that he's worshiping you is because you put a hedge of thorns around him and you protect him and you've blessed him. Of course he's going to worship you. Uh, let's stretch out your hand and take away all that he has. And so God says, okay, we're going to make a testimony of Job. He's going to teach us some things and and God gives Satan permission to uh, test Job, but in a limited way. And so then in the rest of chapter 1, we see that there's a, a raid from the Sabaeans who uh, kill his servants. And then there is a fire from heaven that burns up his sheep and the servants who watch over his sheep. In verse 16, then the Chaldeans raid and they steal the camels and they kill the servants who are watching the camels. And then there's a tornado that comes along in verse 19 and uh, kills all of his children. So Job then uh, tears his robe, shaves his head, falls to the ground, and he worships God. Now, he doesn't, he's not at this point into self-pity. He's not whining. He's not crying. He's not self-absorbed. He's focused on God and he says, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's got the right mental attitude and he's, he's uh, using doctrine. So Satan comes back and says, well, God, that didn't quite work. Let's, let's turn the fires up a little bit. And so then Satan is allowed to uh, attack Job in terms of health testing in chapter 2. And this is when Job starts going on his pity party in chapter 3. He's deploring his birth, wishing he had never been born because life is so miserable. 
And then we have Job's friends come along in the next 37 chapters, and they all tell Job that the reason you're going through all this suffering is just because you've made bad decisions, and you're a sinner, and you deserve all this. And Job knows that's not right, but ultimately he gets to the point where he wants an answer from God. And he is doing the same thing that arrogant people do, whether they're believers or unbelievers, and they say, God, I want to know why. I want to understand why I'm having to go through this testing. I want to know why I'm going through this. And the and then God gives him an answer in chapters 38 to 42. And the interesting thing is God doesn't answer the question. I want you to notice the counseling technique here that God uses. God doesn't put his arm around Job and say, Job, I know it's rough. It's really hard when you lose your children. See, this is just pseudo-compassion and garbage. God, as it were, takes out a wet washcloth and slaps Job in the face with it. He gets Job's attention. He says, Job, you've been hit with a lot of suffering. Get over it and get your mind on the Word and on what's really going on here and quit asking these stupid questions. This is not our picture of a loving, compassionate God because we've got a screwed-up picture of who a loving, compassionate God is. God is compassionate in the sense that he wants us to think correctly, not in terms of arrogance and self-absorption. So as Job is asking and demanding from God an answer to his suffering problem, God appears to him in the whirlwind in chapter 38 and begins in verse 2 by asking a series of rhetorical questions that are designed to point out Job's limitations, that he just has a finite mind and he really can't comprehend the mysteries of the universe. And God starts off by saying, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me. He says, Stand up and take it like a man. So we go through this series of questions in chapters 38, 39, 40, 41, you can read those later. And finally, Job gets the point that I don't need to know the answer. I just need to trust God who controls the situation. And so he uh, answers God in verse 1 of chapter 42. In the first six verses, you have Job's recognition of his own limitation. He says, in verse 2, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be held, withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge or who darkens counsel without knowledge? That's from the 38.2. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. I am just an arrogant, ignorant creature. I should not have asked those questions. They were thing, about things too wonderful me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. Well, I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, now my eyes see you, therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job recognizes that the creature is limited. He's not going to know the answer to everything. It is arrogant to expect that there is an answer. And the part of the reason is, and this is the third point I want to make, and that is that evil and sin is so complex and profound that we we diminish it. And one of the ways that we understand the, the depths, the dimensions of sin and depravity is by looking at the solution. 
We're going to, I will set up here an argument from effect to cause. Look at what the solution is. The solution is that the eternal, holy, righteous God of the universe sends his son to become a creature. He has to set up a plan that takes basically four to 5,000 years to work out before the people on the earth are ready for for his son to appear. That's Galatians 4.4. 4. We'll get into this in a new series. We're going to start this next Sunday. And in Galatians 4.4, 4, the scripture says that Jesus Christ appeared in the fullness of time. And that means that it took 4,000 years for God to prepare mankind, fallen creatures, to receive the Savior. And that doesn't mean they were receptive. That means he was taking them through a learning process. And what we'll see when we study that is the learning process involved giving man the opportunity to try every conceivable solution and see that they failed. There's nothing new under the sun The writer of Ecclesiastes says, and every attempted solution to man's life and to man's problems were tried in the ancient world. And there was a universal expectation of some sort of messianic deliverance, even among the Gentile pagans in that, at that time when Jesus appeared. They were ready. They had been prepared. The world had been prepared. And we see that you have this preparation. You have the incarnation of, of the second person of the Trinity into Jesus in Jesus of Nazareth. You have this incredible suffering that takes place on the cross. His his uh, three hours of suffering, imputation of sin on Christ. This is a profound solution. I mean, God just apparently can't just snap his fingers and solve the sin problem. It is profound, it is complex, it is deep, its, its tentacles reach into everything. And we saw this when we studied the fall. What happens to the fall? Nature changes, botany changes, biology changes, zoology changes. The universe itself, the, the structure of physical laws in the universe are affected by sin. Sin is not simply some small, minor thing. It has, the, and it's just the act of eating a piece of fruit and look at its consequences. You know, we want to rationalize all the time. Well, I'm going to sin and it's not really that big a deal and it's not going to have that many consequences. What God is showing is that that even an innocuous appearing act like eating a piece of fruit shook the foundations of the universe. So the, the solution is so profound and multidimensional that what we see is the, the curses, the, the sin penalty is paid at the cross, and that becomes the foundation for the redemption of the whole Universe, and this is referred to by Paul in Romans eight nineteen to twenty three, and that the curse doesn't start to get rolled back until when Jesus returns at the second coming, the establishment of the millennial kingdom. The lion will lie down with the lamb, and the child will put its hand in the in the cobra's den. All of that is a partial rollback of the curse, but it's not complete until the end of the millennial kingdom, when you have the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. So all of that and the complete destruction of the present universe, why? Because it has been irreversibly marred by sin. It can't be eternal. It has to be destroyed. This is the damaging consequences of sin. We we limit it too much. We make sin this superficial, non-consequential, easy little thing to solve, and it took 
such a redemptive plan of God to solve the sin problem that it boggles our mind and we can't really get everything in our mind around that solution. So this tells us that the, the dimensions of sin and evil and suffering, death and disease are much more profound than most of us have ever been willing uh, uh, to, to consider. And that leads to our conclusion that after we understand the dynamics of the cross and how the sin and evil problem is resolved at the cross, then even though we sit out here in our lives and we still deal with the problems of birth defects and war and famine and all these other things, we know that the solution's been here. And if God, if we can trust God to solve the problem at the cross, then he can solve eventually all these other problems, and there will be a resolution. So when we are the innocent victims of suffering, we claim to be innocent victims, or in some cases we, we are. We do nothing but live in this cosmic system and things happen. We know that the judgment that the, that the Supreme Court of Heaven will bring proper resolution for every injustice, for every piece of suffering and disease in human history. And that leaves us with about four basic questions to answer. We don't have time to look at those this time, but we will next time. And then I want to wrap up this mini, this basically it'll be a three-night mini-series on the problem of evil with human viewpoint coping strategies versus divine viewpoint coping strategies and how we practically deal with the effects of sin and evil in our own day-to-day experience with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time, this evening to study your word, to come to a greater appreciation of the dimensions of, of sin and its consequences and evil and suffering in the entire cosmic system and all that was necessary to resolve that. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.